Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. I'm back from the Rona, and uh, survived, have the t-shirt. Um, and I know several of you have as well. I thank you for your prayers, and uh, I appreciate you guys lifting our family up in prayers. My mom had it worse than I did. She came up to visit us for Christmas and actually ended up with double pneumonia and uh, uh, stayed with us an extra week and uh, actually went back home yesterday. And she's watching online. Hi, Mom. Uh, or at least I hope she is. <laughs> she's not. That was embarrassing. Um, but there are many of our people that have had it and do have it uh, and have been hit extremely hard with this, and I'm not going to mention their names from the pulpit today, but I do ask that you continue to be in prayer for the members of North Main Street Church of God, the members of multiple churches, not only locally, uh, nationally, but globally, who are being hit by this. It's a serious it's a serious illness. It does affect people in radically different ways. For me, it was just like cold-like symptoms. And uh, the only thing that tipped me off, I needed to go get a test because I thought I just had a cold, was I couldn't smell anything. And when they say you can't smell, you can't smell anything, which can have its positives, you know, depending on who you're around. But uh, slowly starting to get my smell back. And again, it's plus or minus depending on who you're around. So... Uh, but seriously, continue to, I don't mean to make light of this, because I know many people's lives have been affected by this extremely, extremely negatively. I just uh, talked with a gentleman yesterday who's a member of the church here, who's been in ICU for two weeks now, and uh, I've been praying with him over text message, talking to him over the phone, and he just told me yesterday, it looks like he may have to go on a ventilator, and I know when it gets to that point, it's it's more than serious, it's kind of beyond a certain threshold, so um, guys and ladies, it's serious, and, uh, and we need to take it seriously. So I'm not going to preach on the politics of it. I'm just letting you know uh, what's going on there and to be in prayer for those that have come through this, that, that are, um, you know, seriously being affected by this. Um, I've been gone for three weeks, three Sundays, I should say, and uh, started the office again on Monday of this past week. It was surreal. It was weird. It was hard to get back into the swing of things. Uh, you've had Matt McCarrier preaching here uh, a couple of those times, and then the, the bald-headed guy last week from uh, South Carolina, uh, his name was Doug Barrett. He used to be a member of the church here several years ago. He's lost, uh, he said over the course of 2020, about 80 pounds, and he decided while on quarantine, since he wasn't traveling, to shave his head bald to see if he would look okay without his hair. And so he said, he's trying to encourage me as Kaylee Sorokin, uh, I think, knows that I should, right? You think I should be completely bald. So... You never know. You might see this nice, shiny, white head, completely free of hair, one of these days. Um, all right, so that's not what you're here for. You're here for a message. Um, yep, please get on with it, right? Um, for those of you at home or those of you here this morning, we have started a year focusing on peace. And... Little did we know, again, two and a half years ago, when our staff was away at a retreat, we were praying through, God, where are you leading us, um, that he would give us the desire to go through the fruit of the Spirit each year, or one fruit of the Spirit each year. We started in 2019 with the fruit of the Spirit called love. And we looked at love all year long as we went through the reading of Scripture, as we've challenged you to read through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And we gave you specific highlighters, if you remember. They were yellow highlighters. No, no, no. They were pink highlighters that first year that signified the color of love. Pink. We couldn't do red. You'd blot out all the letters on your page. But we gave you a pink highlighter. And we said, as you read from Genesis to Revelation, highlight evidence of God's love, of agape love as you go through Scripture. Last year was a year of joy. 
And we gave you a, a highlighter of yellow to represent brightness and vibrance. And so last year, as you read through the Bible, we challenged you from Genesis to Revelation to highlight evidence of joy throughout Scripture. This year is peace. We have light blue highlighters because the color of peace, if you do a Google search, is blue. And so we got you a light blue highlighter. And as you go through scripture reading this year from Genesis to Revelation, it's important, especially in light of the condition of our global status right now and what's happening in the world, that we see evidence of God's peace as we read through his word. And I want you to notice something. As you even read through the Old Testament this year, how much peace you're going to find. God gets a bad rap in the Old Testament of being a God of wrath and judgment. But if you open your eyes to see God for who he really is, the same yesterday, today, and forever, you get a good picture, holistic picture, that he is the same God in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. So as we go through this year of peace, little did I know that within the first week of January of 2021, that peace would be put to the test. We are being tested right now. It's not a strange thing to expect that. Jokingly, even foreshadowing 2022, what's the next fruit of the Spirit? After peace in the, in the list? Patience. Brace yourself. It's going to be fun. I'm going to do today a follow-up to what Matt McCarrier did a couple weeks ago. He asked the question, what is peace? And I'm going to come at this same question from a different perspective today. So today is entitled, What is Peace? Part 2. And I want to read the same passage of Scripture that Matt read, which is from Galatians chapter 5. And we're going to start with verse 16. And if you will, you can go ahead and turn there. I'm reading from the New Living Translation today. These are Paul's words as he's beginning to close out his letter to the church at Galatia. And I want you to hear what he says. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Who is the Holy Spirit? He's God. Who is Jesus? He's God. Who is the Father? He's God. We call this the Trinity. If we want to use a theological term, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are three persons in one essence. That one essence is God. Or as God called himself at the burning bush in Exodus 3, telling Moses who he was, he says, I am that I am. In the very essence of who God is, that Yahweh, that tetragrammaton, as the Jewish people know it, is the very essence of who God is. He is. He always was and he always will be, as I mentioned a moment ago. That's, that's what makes him who he is. He is the ever-existent one. And it's from him and through him all things come into existence. So now when we consider the Holy Spirit as part of that Godhead... When Paul says, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives, he's saying, let the Spirit of God, which exists in our day and age as the representative of God in these last days. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would show up. He was there on the scene multiple times. He was there at the very beginning in Genesis 1, and he was there um, throughout all the kings and prophets, even the judges. We read about the Holy Spirit coming on the judges and on the prophets of God. But the difference in the way the Holy Spirit reacted and responded in those days in the way he responds today is that we have been imparted the Holy Spirit after the ascension of Christ on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. And God's Spirit dwells with the, in the midst of the believers of Christ, not just in the corporate setting, but within the hearts and the the lives of those. So where is the temple of God now? The very presence of where God dwells. It's not in a building, but in the people of God as individuals and corporately. So let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. What is a sinful nature? It's the flesh. It's, it's, it's those things 
that are contrary or in disobedience to God and his words and commandments. Now that sounds, again, really old school. We're going to talk about sin today. Well, it's hard to talk about what it means to live a holy life and, and producing the fruit of the Spirit without understanding the context of the contrast of the fruit that leads to death. He said the sinful nature, verse 17, wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. See, these two forces are constantly fighting against each other so that you are not free to carry out your good intentions. Have you ever had those moments where you're tempted to do something you know you shouldn't do, and there's this internal wrestling back and forth, I know I shouldn't do this, but I really, really want... Have you ever had those experiences? A couple of you have. I have too. We are all tempted, and, and we all have different vices. We aren't all tempted in the same ways because we are all different individuals. But we all have sinful natures that if not kept in check by the Spirit of God and our belief and faith in Jesus Christ can lead us astray and lead us down a path of unrighteousness, down a path not of salvation, but rather to destruction. And so we do war within ourselves against these things that we know we shouldn't do. Paul even says in another one of his letters, the things I don't want to do, I do, and the things I know I need to do, I don't do. What a wretched person I am. Have you ever said that to yourself? Have you ever called yourself an idiot when you've stumbled and done something you shouldn't have done? Have you ever besmirched your own character because you see within you what others don't and you think you're a failure? You see, what God sees in you is something so totally different, or he wouldn't have sent his son to die on the cross for you. That's why it is truly a sacrifice, that sacrifice on the cross, that God loved us enough to send his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It's another sermon for another time, but this belief that we are to have isn't just an intellectual, yeah, I believe there's a God. It is a life-transforming, heart-changing belief. It is a trust. It is a faith that goes beyond the mere thinking of something and believing. So it's like, I remember going through school and college and seminary, and I can think a lot of things. Yeah, I believe this doctrine or that doctrine, but do I believe it enough that when it's put to the test, I'll put it into practice? You see, that's the kind of belief in John 3.16 we are told to have, not just an intellectual knowledge. Yeah, I believe there's a God. I mean, nobody can really know, but sure, I believe there's a God. That doesn't save you. What saves you is this active participation of faith that trusts God no matter what. And this is the kind of spirit of truth in the Holy Spirit that is here to walk with us and guide us in, in the ways of, of God and his righteousness to produce the fruit of that spirit where God says, I'm not asking you to do this alone. I'm not asking you to believe alone. I'm with you. I'll be there with you till the end of the age. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, which is our key scripture, our main scriptures as a church, and our mission as a church. So he says these two forces, the good and the bad, the sinful nature and the Holy Spirit, these kind of natures are warring against each other so that we are not free to carry out our good intentions. How many times have you been faced with a situation to do the right thing, but for fear you didn't do it because you thought you would be considered weird, your reputation might be marred because you'd be considered a holy freak or a Jesus freak or something like that. To do the right thing and not to do it is also sin, we are told in other aspects of Paul's writings. We have this internal wrestling, not just to not do bad things, but to actually do what is right. But to not do what is right is wrong. Did you catch that? Okay. But when you were directed, he goes on to say, verse 18, by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. Now, what's he saying? The law of Moses can be summed up in the Ten Commandments. That technically is the basis for the other 600-plus laws of God that were derived in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But they all find their point of origin from the Ten Commandments in Exodus 19 to 20. Okay? 
There's only one God. You shall have no other gods but me. Don't worship idols. Don't take my name in vain. Honor your father and mother. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. I know I switched two of those around, but you go on all the way down the list of those. And I actually have students here that are in my seventh grade class that had to memorize the Ten Commandments and word them in order, didn't you guys? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they heard me say that, and they probably noticed I flipped one of them around. So anyway, but he's not saying I'm basically casting away the law of Moses, but what he's saying is you are not under the obligation to the law of Moses if you were in Christ and being led by the Spirit. So what does he mean by that? This has been misinterpreted often, that, oh, we just get rid of the Old Testament. No, 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 no. Uh-uh. That's not what we do here. When we are led by the Spirit and have the Holy Spirit living in us, we have the living law of God. This is why we wrestle against good and bad, right and wrong. This is that conscience that says, I don't want to, I, I do want to do this, but I shouldn't do it. And we have this conviction of God's Spirit on us. So it's, it's saying, not under obligation to, but still living under the impression of that law. Now, there's a couple things going on in this. Jesus said in the, in the Gospels, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of God or the law of Moses, but rather I've come to fulfill it. And how did he do that? Well, he took the Ten Commandments, he took the other 600 laws of God, and, and he lived them perfectly. He was tempted in every way, we are told, but he did not give in to temptation. So perfectly, he did what we could not do. So he fulfilled that obligation that the law had and placed upon the people of God because the people of God could never achieve that level of perfection. So God said, they can't do it, I'll do it for them. Right? And so at just the right time in human history, Jesus steps into time. He takes care of what we could not do. And then he offers us a new covenant through the grace and the blood shed on the cross. At the Last Supper, the Passover meal, we, we celebrate communion or the Eucharist at the last Sunday of every month here at North Main Street Church of God where we take the cup and the bread to remember the broken body and the blood of Christ that was poured out on Calvary. But in that last meal that he had with his disciples, that last Passover meal, he gave significance, new significance to the bread as being a representation of his body that was broken, on, would be broken on Calvary. And he gave a new representation of the cup of wine at the Passover meal, that it would be his blood poured out for the sins of many, this new covenant of his blood. And so now, since he's fulfilled those commands, the responsibility on believers in Christ is to follow in his footsteps and thus receive salvation from sin and death, which is something the law could never do for us. That's something that no animal sacrifice could ever do for a human being. That's why they continued to sacrifice animals over and over and over. So Jesus became the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world by being crucified and being that sacrifice. This is why we call this good news. It's because we no longer have to continue in a pattern of behavior in obligation to the law of Moses to sacrifice animals, to not eat certain foods, to not do all of these things. Because that was fulfilled perfectly in Christ. And now what we are responsible for is to faithfully believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of our life. Putting all trust in him, surrendering our life to him, and walking in the straight and narrow path that he has laid out for us. Which is not easy, by the way, but is oftentimes extremely difficult. The narrow way is not meant to be easy. And those who take it are not very many. But that's a different service for a different time. So verse 19, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are clear. So what, what are the results of following your sinful nature? 
Is it love, joy, peace, patience, kindness? No. He gives us a list. So he says, when you decide to, to cast off the Holy Spirit or not live under the impression and conviction of the Holy Spirit, here's what happens. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Lustful pleasure. What's sexual immorality? I... And this is so taboo today, and I've been considered a hater for saying these things. But Scripture clearly states anything outside of the bonds between one man and one woman in holy matrimony is sexual immorality. You can get mad at me all that you want to. But I have to stand an account someday for what I teach from this place or any other place. You know, don't take my word for it. Do your own study of Scripture. Sexual immorality, what is it? It's anything outside of what God's perfect ceremony was for humans. You go all the way back to the garden. And we read before any sin entered the world what God created, how he created it, and that at the end of every one of those days, he said it is good. And at the end of the sixth day, he said it's very good as he looked over all that he had created And he created male and female in his image. In the image of God, he created them. See, they are to be bound together as one. So, again, I don't want to belabor the point on sexual immorality, but I don't want there to be any confusion about what Paul means, what Scripture means when sexual immorality comes up. It's anything outside of the context of God's original design for man and woman in holy matrimony forever. Impurity, lustful pleasures, could be pornography, could be just thoughts in the mind. It could be wanting something that you don't have to the point to where you'll fantasize about it. Lust, uh, idolatry, <laughs> here's a tough one. Anything you put in the position of where God was reserved in your life, anything that is the most important thing in your life becomes your object to worship, thus becoming your idol. We don't have to carve wooden, wooden or stone idols and place them on our mantelpiece. We don't have to have a Buddha in our house and rub its belly, as some religions do, to say we are idol worshipers. You can worship money as an idol. You can worship your family or your children as an idol. You can worship your parents as an idol. You can worship your spouse as an idol. And that's why Jesus says in regard to family relationships, even in the New Testament, unless your love for me is greater than your love for anybody else, you can have no part of me. And in some of the translations, it actually states it this way. You must hate your father, your mother, your brother, your sister in order to be one of mine. You see, and, and if you're not careful, you misunderstand that. He's not saying you have to hate people. But he says, what, your love for others should so pale in comparison to your love for God that it looks subpar. Okay? So what is idolatry? Putting anything as the most important thing in your life other than God, other than your worship of God. It could be your work. It could be your house, your car, could be any, it could be COVID, right? What's your main focus right now? And I don't say that lightly or flippantly, but the truth of the matter is, whatever has dominated your mind and has become the sole focus of your heart and your mind becomes your point of idolatry. Sorcery. Hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. He's he's saying this isn't an exhaustive list. There's many more. I could continue on if you'd like. But the irony is I see evidence of a lot of those in the church. I do. I see jealousy in the church. I see hostility over masks versus no masks. Is, that too, is it too soon to say that? I'm not advocating one way or the other. But church, as I preached earlier in the year when we first started getting back into services, the enemy will use whatever he can to divide the body of Christ. 
and he will get our eyes off the goal, and he'll get us focused on things that are of no eternal worth and value so that we are infighting so much that we become divided. And when a house is divided against itself, this is not Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln got this from the Bible. What, is it, what happens to that house that's divided against itself? It will not stand. Ladies and gentlemen, the church in our culture right now is on the verge of cracking up. I think the God who is ultimately in control is allowing certain things to happen, and I am not a prophet. Don't take this for the gospel truth, but as I'm sitting on uh, uh, where I'm seated and watching all of this unfold, I think, God, is this maybe an act of judgment? Not COVID, not that you created it and you're cursing people with it, but that you're withdrawing your presence because we have so longed for something other than you that you finally said, all right, fine. You don't want me enough. You're casting me out of everything else in society, even out of your churches, so I will oblige, and I'll step back. But know that in my stepping back, that means my protection is stepping back. I still love you. I still love you to the point of the cross, and that will never change, but I will give you what you want because I love you, not because it's what you need. And so we have hostility in the church. We have backbiting. We have rumors. We have all of this stuff. God forbid it because that is the destruction of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. But rather, Jesus himself in John chapter 10, 10 says, I didn't come to do that. I came so that you can have life abundantly. A life fear, uh, uh, excuse me, free from fear and worry and judgment and condemnation. Well, that's what the church is. It's full of fear, worry, judgment, condemnation. Well, then we've got to change, don't we? Yes, we should. And we should change so that the world doesn't just see something different. They know something's different. I'm not saying go on and put on a facade, but church. And again, I know there are people that are going to be listening to this online in the coming days that have never set foot in this building. Church at large. God is giving us a wake-up call by saying, okay, the result of the sinful nature will ultimately lead to destruction. Everything within your culture, church, not just within the church culture, within the culture, doesn't show evidence of me. We are the hands and the feet as the body of Christ. What impression and what evidence is there of us having been anywhere in this culture? And no, I'm not saying go pick it and storm the Capitol. What I'm saying is the way of Jesus, which is what? The way of nonviolence. Next week, completely breaking from our sermon theme. And I'm looking at Matthew chapter 5. I'm not breaking from peace, but I'm breaking from what I had initially planned for next week. And we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Please don't miss next week. Because Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, in Matthew 5, 9, says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the what? The children of God. What is your evidence to the world that you are a child of God? What's it say? Peacemaker. It doesn't say, and I said this to our board and I've said this to our staff, it doesn't say be a peacekeeper. Don't just keep the peace. What are you supposed to do? Make peace, produce peace. And I find this so divine about God's word because it doesn't contradict Paul's words in these next few verses which says the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace. Fruit is a product of God's spirit living in us. It's something that is made in us and is given out. Do you, do you catch that? The fruit of the spirit is peace. Church, we are to be peacemakers. 
Well, we're getting our freedoms all trampled on. You will. Yes. Actually, Jesus promised us persecution. Why is that a shock to the church? We are promised it will not go well for us this side of heaven. Being a believer in Christ is not for the faint of heart. Being a follower of Christ will lead you into some dark places. But when you go through the valley of the shadow of death, you can fear no evil. Because God's with you. John 16, 33, I told Chris Ramos this this morning. It's been really continuing to bubble back to the surface for me over the past several months. Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 16, in the context of the Last Supper, he's looking at them around the table that night, knowing he's going to be arrested, led away to be crucified, and buried in a borrowed tomb. But he has the hope within him because he knows the end goal. And he says in John 6, 16:33, in this world, guys, you're going to have troubles of all kinds. But I want you to do something. I want you to take heart because I've overcome the world. Where's your hope this morning? Your hope is in Christ, or at least it should be. And if you're here and you've lost all hope, I can tell you who can give you that hope back. I can lead you straight there, but I can't make you partake of that peace and that salvation and that grace and that hope. And if you are here and you've lost every bit of it because you see the evidence of the enemy that I just read to you in the world around you and even in the church, and you're like, there's no hope then I want you to listen to what's next. He goes on to write, let me tell you again about those lists of of sin, sinful behaviors. As as I have before, let me tell you again, that anyone living uh, this sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. I've gotten in debate with people before. So you're telling me I'm going to hell if I'm doing any of this. I'm not telling you that. Don't blame me. I'm just the messenger. If I'm believing what Scripture says, what does that mean? If you live this, if you are continually, perpetually going back to the feeding trough of slop, and I used to slop pigs as a kid, so you take these big five-gallon buckets of rotten vegetables and stuff, and smells putrid, if you want to continue to go back to that, which is ultimately going to lead to death, I I, I can't make you change your mind. But that kind of stuff will lead to a life separated from God for eternity. But here's the hope. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. When we fully surrender ourselves to Christ, submitting ourselves completely to him, we basically forfeit our sinful natures and deny ourselves. That's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 9. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must first deny yourselves daily, take up your cross, and follow me. See, it's about self-denial. It's not about getting what you deserve or getting something you think you should have. Like justice. Vengeance isn't yours. It's his. See, the problem within the church is that we act out of the sinful nature, out of this fleshly nature toward our brothers and sisters in Christ, sadly, but even to a world in need of a Savior. And what they see are people of judgment, much like the Pharisees were in Jesus' day and age, who were trying to find a reason to get him arrested. We cannot play by the by the, uh, by the world's standards, and we cannot play by the tools the world gives. Instead, we are to overcome evil with good. That's what peacemaking is all about. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And the great thing about this is, no matter what culture, what time period you live in, there is no law against these things. The law cannot stop you from producing this kind of fruit in your life, this kind of behavior in your life. 
Verse 24, those who belong to Christ have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let us not become conceited. Oh, church. We have a tendency to become conceited, even if ever subtly so, to get people to look at our holiness, which becomes a point of pride within us. So much so that we contrast ourselves with those who are less holy. Church, it should not be. The most holy of all living human beings was Jesus Christ. And instead of standing on a platform preaching at sinners, he went among them. He addressed their sin, point blank. He never skirted the issue, ever. But he gave them something that the religious leaders of his day and age wouldn't. You see, the holiest of all holy people went among the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the homeless, the downtrodden, the ones who were beaten down by society and the world. The ones who were told by religious leaders they weren't good enough, they are never going to make it, you can't achieve what I've achieved. You see, in Jesus' economy and in Jesus' kingdom, there is an equal playing field. Everybody is on the same footing. And yet, there seems to be an unhealthy hierarchy that's oftentimes placed within our churches of these who are greater than from those who are less than. I remember when we first started changing things up at the church, that became extremely disconcerting for many, and we lost a lot of people over that, believe it or not. If we had retained everybody, I think I've told you this before, that we had when I first came, in addition to those that came after I'd been here for a while, we'd be over 1,000 people. But sometimes the Word of God is very hard to chew on and very hard to swallow. When the pastor isn't the one to hand out the communion as the blessed Holy One who has been sanctified to do so, then that's too far for me. I can't go there. When the, when the one who is the clergy is not the one that's baptizing everybody that gets saved, or he's not doing all the weddings, or he's not doing all the funerals. Well, what do we pay you for? I said this a few weeks ago. What do we pay you for? And the board's here, and they're like, yeah, what do we pay you for? The reality, don't clap on that. The reality is every pastor, every clergy, everyone who is called to vocational ministry should be empowering other people for ministry. You will never find in there where it's only ordained clergy that do the baptizing, that, that break the bread. It says, when you get together, do this in remembrance of me. He didn't say, when you get together, make sure you have an apostle there or a preacher or a pastor there so that they can distribute the elements. Church, we have become so constrained and so constricted because of a hierarchy that doesn't mirror the hierarchy of heaven. And the church has suffered for it. So when trying times like COVID come or political distress comes, what happens to the church? We fall apart. Because we're focused on the wrong things, we have the wrong leadership structures in place, and we don't have a foundation that will keep us from sinking into the sand. And if that makes people mad that I say that, I, I apologize that it puts that much distress on you. Maybe that's the way you were raised. But there's something I know about Jesus is he came into a generation where people had been raised for centuries with the misconception of what God was and who God was and the very essence and nature of who God was. And when Jesus came, we are told that he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. They didn't recognize him, Isaiah tells us. He foreshadows that. And it's true. How sad that the very God of all creation stepped into their midst, was full of grace, was full of truth, and they rejected him because they decided that their structure, their religious structure, was better 
than God. Why is the church struggling in America today? Because it's forgotten its roots and its history, which is a rich, rich history. Well, what about the Crusades and the Inquisition? And I'm not saying it's a perfect history. And I'm not letting us off the hook for those things. Do your research. There's always been a remnant of God's people, holy people, who have never bowed to Caesar as Lord, who have always enacted peacemaking above all else. What about the blanks, Brandon? Real quick. Peace isn't merely the absence of evil, but rather it's the presence of the Almighty God. You're going to find out these next few months that the words peace we're going to be focusing on are Old and New Testament words. The first one's called shalom, and it's often used as a greeting in the Hebrew culture and even in Orthodox Judaism today. You come in contact with somebody instead of saying, how do you do? Or, uh, how yin's doing? It still feels weird to say that. How y'all doing? Um, it's shalom. It's shalom, the very strictest interpretation or let's say translation of that would be something to the effect of, I'm wishing your best. I want what is best for you. And, and they would say this, or at least they were supposed to, even to their enemies. Shalom. I wish your best. I don't wish that Bad things wouldn't happen to you only. It's not like saying, oh, I hope nothing bad happens. Okay, that's not what shalom means. Shalom means I wish what's best for you. And what's best for you may not be what you think is best, but oftentimes it's what you need, and what you need will strengthen you to go the next step. I wish what's best for you. Same word in Greek is called erene. Say erene. Thank you. I, it's so fun to say. Irene is a word that means the same thing in Greek. I wish what's best for you. It's the same word that Paul uses here for peace, love, joy, peace. Irene. I wish what's best for you. Keep in mind that it is not the absence of bad, but rather it's the presence of good amidst the bad. This is why Paul can say in Philippians chapter 4 that we can have a peace, an arene that passes understanding. Because there can be peace even amidst the storms of life. Do you remember Matt McCarrier told you a story? Let me read it to you real quick. What did he read you? He read you about the picture of peace. Um, in his Bible study on the armor of God entitled A Wardrobe from the King, Berit Kios explains the image of perfect peace through an illustration. Listen to what he says. He writes, Long ago, a man sought the perfect picture of peace. Not finding the one that he was satisfied with, he announced a contest to produce a masterpiece of what peace should look like. The challenge stirred the imagination of artists everywhere, and the paintings arrived far and wide. Finally, the great day of revelation arrived, and the judges uncovered one piece of picture or one scene, peaceful scene after another, while viewers clapped and cheered the magnificent masterpieces of these artists. But the tensions began to grow. Only two pictures remained veiled at the time. As a judge pulled the cover from one, a hush ended up falling over the crowd. It was a mirror-smooth lake that reflected these lacy green birch trees under the soft blush of the evening sky. All along the grassy shore, there was a flock of sheep grazing undisturbed. Surely this had to be the winner, hands down. Nothing else up to this point had matched the peacefulness in the pictures as this one had. And yet, there was one more to be unveiled. So the man with the vision for this whole artistic challenge uncovered the second painting himself, and the crowd gasped in surprise. Could this be peace? 
Listen. A tumultuous waterfall cascaded down a rocky precipice. See, the crowd could almost feel the cold, penetrating spray of the waterfall. There were stormy great clouds threatening to explode with lightning, wind, and rain high above. In the midst of the thundering noises of the waterfall and the bitter chill, a spindly tree clung to the rocks at the edge of the falls. One of its branches reached out in front of the torrential waters as if foolishly seeking to experience the full power and weight of the rushing water. And there was a little bird that had built a nest in the elbow of that branch. Content and undisturbed in her stormy surroundings, she rested on the eggs that she had just laid in that nest. With her eyes closed and her wings ready to cover her little ones, she manifested a peace that transcends all earthly turmoil. What a perfect picture of peace, at least peace this side of heaven. Peace is being tested, ladies and gentlemen, in our culture right now, in our world right now, and it's always been tested, and it always will be tested until Christ comes back again. You may find yourself perched in a branch, precariously hanging over a cliff in front of a torrential waterfall with looming dark clouds above, threatening your safety. But you can find peace, a peace that passes understanding. And lastly, real peace comes from God through Jesus Christ. See the peace the world gives? You can have peace this side of heaven minus Christ. You can. People have peace all the time. But I'm going to challenge you with this. That kind of peace is fleeting because the kind of peace that God gives through Jesus Christ is different than the world gives. And here's how I want to prove that to you. John chapter 14, one of my favorite chapters from the whole Bible, John chapter 14. But look at verse 27. Jesus says, I'm leaving you with a gift. John 14, 27, I am leaving you with a gift. And he says this gift is peace of mind and heart. And the peace that I give is a gift that the world cannot give. You can search for peace in everything this world has to offer. It is not going to be the same as the kind of peace that God gives through Jesus Christ. So Jesus says again, don't be troubled or afraid. And again, two chapters later is where John 16.33 comes into play in this world. You'll have troubles of any kind, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Let me close with this as our worship team comes forward. Amy Carmichael, who was a missionary to India, she wrote these words. Blessed are the single-hearted, for they shall enjoy much peace. If you refuse to be hurried and pressed, if you stay your soul on God, nothing can keep you from the clearness of spirit, which is life and peace. In that stillness, you know what his will is. We live in an impatient society, ladies and gentlemen. We want what we want now, and if we're not getting it, then somebody else has to pay. And we point a finger of judgment and condemnation toward others because it can't be us. I'm impatient. I'm impatient when I'm at the drive-thru. I'm impatient, right? It's supposed to be fast food. I won't extend grace to the person checking me out because I've had to wait in line at least five minutes. We are a very impatient people. We should take our, our cues from God who is long-suffering and patient beyond our wildest imagination. You see, the very God who can condemn all of us to hell waits patiently for as many people as possible to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, because he doesn't want anybody to perish, but he desires for all to have eternal life. Because he knows the offer of peace and salvation that he gives is not just life-altering, it's life-changing. 
if you're struggling with not having a peace in you right now, even as a faithful follower of Christ, where's your focus, first off? Because in this world, you're going to have troubles. Take heart. He's overcome the world. Sarah Lee talked just a moment ago about this hope that we are to have. It's hard to have hope when hope is challenged at every turn. But where's your focus? We need Christ now more than ever in our lives. As a church, as a community, as a state, as a nation, as a global community, we need peace. Not the peace the world gives, but the peace that only Christ can give. As always, our altars are open. Those of you at home, if you want to kneel by your couch, your chair, Please take advantage of this moment because I don't believe God exists in a building only. I believe he exists in the fellowship of believers. No matter where you are today, whether here in this place or at home, you are loved not just by me, but most importantly by God Almighty who sees you where you are, who knows the struggles you're facing, and is the author of peace, the prince of peace. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're lost without you. We struggle with being in a boat where the waves are crashing over and the wind is threatening to blow us around. And oftentimes we get angry because it seems you don't care, like you're sleeping in the bow of the boat. How can you be asleep when we're in such a mess? And yet you remind us who you really are when you stand in that boat and you say, peace, be still. And even the wind and the waves obey your command. Remind us when we doubt, when we question, throughout the midst of trouble, turmoil, persecution, physical struggles, that God, you are the one who could calm the wind and waves. Thank you, Father. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.